Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A warm welcome to Whitehall Sources. We are about to bring you inside analysis on UK politics in association with The Resident. Did you know that The Resident Covent Garden is the number one rated hotel on TripAdvisor out of nearly 1,200 options in London. Now, opinion pollsters would tell you that that sample size is enough to convince you to lend resident hotels your support the next time you elect to stay in London or Liverpool. Thanks for being here. Whitehall Sources starts now. So if he won't answer any questions, will he at least apologise for the lethal chaos under his watch? He asked about the minimum safety levels. We we will deliver them as soon as we can pass them. Why won't he vote for them, first of all? Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. It's Thursday the 19th of January. Lots to come on this episode of the podcast. We're going to look at strike action. We'll do that a little bit later on. We've also got to consider surely Jacinda Ardern, who's standing down as Prime Minister of New Zealand. And what do you do in the event of a political resignation? How does that work? Particularly when it feels quite spontaneous, perhaps quite out of the blue. Is there ever such a thing? And of course... Do all political careers end in failure? The essential question. And does it apply to Jacinda Ardern? Also, we'll be doing a little rundown of all the many, many factions, both in the Conservative Party and in the Labour Party, but particularly as fans of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss start uniting around either their ideologies or indeed the idea of a comeback for either person. Uh, We'll discuss, which has been a theme of the podcast, by the way, the factions of the Conservative Party and how on earth you're supposed to manage them all. What do you do with this many uh, different people representing so many different interests? That is all to come. Thankfully, of course, we've got uh, our usual suspects with us today. Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May. Hello, Kirsty. Hi, good morning. And Frankie Leach is here too, former advisor to Jeremy Corbyn when he was the Labour leader. Hello, Frankie. 
Hello. And you can get in touch as well. Always, always, always. This is your podcast too. You can email us anytime. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. And thank you to those of you who have signed up to our mailing list so far. I've been keeping a little eye on this. As promised, we're never, ever going to spam you. In fact, the first thing that we will send out to that mailing list is going to be a big announcement. I can't tell you when, but I can tell you it's going to be big. So let me say hello to David, who signed up, Shanir, who signed up, Jane, uh, Stephen has signed up, David, uh, Brackenbury, uh, Jim as well. Thank you for signing up. You're just some of the people who have signed up to the mailing list. To do to sign up, to join the mailing list, just go to whitehallsources.com uh, and pop your name in there. Uh, you have to verify your email address, but I'm sure you're used to that. Uh, and then we can keep in touch with our big announcement from here on out as well, which will be lovely. I say it's your podcast and I absolutely mean it. So this week we want to start with uh, a question, actually. One of the questions we've received uh, It's a really good one and it follows on from, from what we were talking about on last week's episode. So this question comes from Thomas. By the way, it's surefire way to get your email read out is to start like this. I absolutely love the podcast, and I really enjoyed the chat about Scotland, the SNP, Nicola Sturgeon, etc. And I have a question. How is Scotland viewed in Whitehall? I'm asking this because here in Scotland, sometimes people will say that to Westminster, Scotland is a pain, and UK politicians don't really think or care much about Scotland, and therefore we should go independent. But others will say that Scotland is a massive source of revenue for the UK, so London is blocking independence because they will lose so much money, therefore we should go independent. I've always wondered who is right. How is Scotland viewed in Whitehall? Kirsty Buchanan. So I think the first thing I want to say is the Act of Union was passed in 1707, right? So the one thing I can absolutely 100% guarantee you, no matter who the Prime Minister, no matter their party, no Prime Minister in Westminster wants to be the Prime Minister that broke up the Union after hundreds and hundreds of years of a United Kingdom. So that is the most important kind of North Star for any any government. I think they're in from that. I think there's a, a, a kind of complexity of reactions and feelings that sits underneath it. So in essence, the relationship is both held at number 10, but it's also held by the cabinet office as well. There is sometimes a feeling that uh, whoever uh, holds that relationship, usually the sort of chance of the Duchy of Lancaster, if they're seen to be too kind of pro-shop steward for the first ministers, if you like, there's a feeling that they've gone native. But otherwise, they try to make the relationship... I mean, and it's going to have tensions and it's going to have inherent problems in it, as we, we've seen in this week and, and this back end of last week. But by and large, they try to manage it in as most a constructive way as possible. There are regular meetings between the Cabinet Office or Number 10 and the First Minister's all matters of, of devolved administration are uh, talked through um, uh, with them. But there are reserved powers. Mm. There are reserved powers to the United Kingdom uh, around security, around defence, around the, the vast majority of taxation. Um, and it's always going to be this, this slightly tense relationship between a kind of slightly paternalistic, if you like, Westminster that ultimately holds the purse strings and hands out the money through... Uh, the wonderful thing called the Barnet Consequential, yeah. and those that, you know, quite rightly and understandably agitate for more powers. That's not the same as saying independence, but sort of greater powers. And 
devolution is a is an ever evolving thing. It's mm-hmm. not a kind of once in a generation event. So there are fits and spurts to the relationship, but by and large, it's viewed to be as kind of productive uh, and conciliatory as possible. Frankie, what's the kind of opposition take on that? Because Kirsty's Kirsty's thought there that you don't want to be the prime minister who breaks up the UK surely underscores the kind of the overarching theme. I suppose in opposition, it's a difficult one because the the Labour Party is still quite a big force in Scotland at Holyrood and in general. So I'm just wondering what the kind of awareness level is and, and consideration and care level is. I mean, it's absolutely a high consideration for the Labour Party. I remember when I was an advisor, I spent a week in Scotland because a large part of our electoral strategy was to win back those seats that had been lost um, from Scottish Labour over to the SNP during that massive upset. I mean, there's 59 parliamentary seats in Westminster uh, for Scottish constituencies. And lots of people will tell you that, you know, the Labour Party won't be able to get a majority in Parliament if it doesn't win back Scotland. So, you know, Scotland is a big kind of overhang for any kind of Labour Party politician, you know, doesn't matter what your stripes are, you know, that's a key electoral battleground, unless you start to look at, you know, other options like trying to take on those, you know, Tory safe constituencies down in the southeast and southwest. I mean, when I was advising Jeremy, we had a very good relationship with the Scottish Labour leader, Richard Leonard. And, you know, he was picked for that job particularly because they felt like he really understood kind of the Scottish issue and at the time and when we were up there for that week we were traveling around to these constituencies and I I mean there's massive levels of poverty and inequality in Scotland and that really dictates and defines Scottish politics you know in inner city areas like Glasgow you'll see some of the worst poverty rates um, across the UK. So for a Labour Party government, I mean, part of that is that they really want to help in that level of inequality. So Scotland is a is a key battleground for them for loads of different things, policy-wise as well. You've also got that added question of the fact that, particularly for Scotland, oil is a huge part of the Scottish economy. And if you're looking at having a progressive climate strategy for the Labour Party, you would want to be offering something, you know, to Scottish people who, you know, quite commonly will want to go and work in the oil rigs, particularly in those kind of rural areas just off the North Sea. And if you're saying to them, we would really like you to go and work in, you know, clean energy and clean wind, then that needs to be a Labour Party manifesto commitment to make sure that Scotland does have green alternatives when we talk about this green industrial revolution, the green economy. So it'd be interesting to see kind of what Labour's manifesto commitments are around Scotland and all of those key areas in the next general election. There you go. I think the the overarching feeling then, to answer Thomas's question, is that it is a priority, that it is important, and that because the parties that that stand at Westminster to lead the government to you know to uh, to be elected in, into government, because they're all unionist parties, they do not want to split up the UK, and so they're they're fully aware of the ins and outs and what that means. Uh, for them, for their policies, and indeed for how to address Scotland. So, Thomas, I hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Uh, just on, just quickly go on, Frankie. Well, yeah. There's also an interesting tidbit here for us to look out for, which is that obviously we've got the boundary review coming up, and in the background, kind of less well known, is the fact that Scotland's had its own periodical boundary review going on for quite a while now, and there was a conversation about whether those new constituencies would be drawn up in time for the last election. And the latest I heard was that they were looking at trying to get this done in 2023, which is obviously this year. So it might be 
that the next UK general election has entirely different seats, or at least a lot of different seats in Scotland, which may well change mm. the approach that the, all of the parties have in those areas. Yeah, very valid point, actually. Uh, and just to uh, build on this, then, we, we are very active on TikTok, on Instagram and on Twitter. Just search for Whitehall Sources to find us. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I've stolen the Virality League table this week on TikTok, guys. So... Um, my time, to, oh, my no. time to shine. I'm trying to dethrone Kirsty, who to this day wipes the floor with everyone on TikTok. Uh, basically, we put the, popped up the clip there of me saying that Nicola Sturgeon, my, my rather rogue prediction, that Nicola Sturgeon won't be the First Minister of Scotland by the end of the year. And oh my goodness, what a mix of hundreds of comments. Somebody says 100% disagree. Owen says, please come true. Richard says, hope you're right. HGV says, comical. She's not going anywhere. Uh, somebody whose name is a full stop. I literally cannot see this happening at all. Uh, somebody, somebody whose username is just a load of numbers says, yippee. Um, this person, N, says, to be fair, I think Nicola and the SNP have been in longer than the Tories. We need them both out, uh, is what this person says. There was somebody who was particularly offensive to me further down. Oh, yes, as propaganda goes, that's pretty weak, says Michael. Uh, Randy says, your foresight is as useless as your strategic thinking. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, this person says, awful take. Uh, but then again, this channel is filled with awful takes. Well, hello to Tip666, who does follow us, uh, so clearly enjoys our awful takes, and to whom I replied, what's your favourite awful take of ours? And they didn't reply. So we won that one. Well done, us. <laughs> um, <laughs> we should put a little countdown clock somewhere on our... <laughs> <laughs> on our face. X days for Nicola Sturgeon to resign, <laughs> yeah, question <that's> right. mark. <laughs> I'll get a whiteboard. I'll put up a whiteboard up here behind me and we'll start counting down. I'm a bit worried that we're going to become a like a serious target for the SNP. Like, is it that we want at the end, the end of this to have Nicola Sturgeon stand up in a debate, you know, ready for the next general election and say, and this is a message to Callum. <laughs> I'm still here. I'd t that'd be great for clicks, to be fair. So yeah, if you want to do that, First Minister, feel free. <laughs> Speaking of resignations then, shall we discuss Jacinda Ardern, who has announced she's going to stand down as the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Uh, really interesting this. Not enough in the tank is the quote that's being um, considered a lot today. Uh, this from the Times, Jacinda Ardern has shocked New Zealand by announcing that she's stepping down as Prime Minister after five and a half years because she has no more in the tank. Uh, she said politicians are human. She's decided to quit by February the 7th and not seek re-election. She was elected in 2017, aged 37. Um, she led New Zealand through its worst terror attack. Uh, the volcan that, Remember that volcanic eruption, that awful volcanic eruption? And of course the pandemic as well. Uh, you can probably understand why she's not got much left in the tank. I think, first of all, let's start with just a, a consideration of this, Frankie. What do you make of, of Jacinda Ardern's resignation and indeed the reasons for it? I mean, I woke up this morning and I had a um, alert on my phone from The Guardian um, saying that Jacinda Ardern had resigned. And I keep quite a close eye on international politics in particular because of my job. And, you know, if you listen to the vox pops of journalists, even ones based in New Zealand, like the actual local correspondents who work in politics, nobody, nobody knew this was happening. Nobody saw it coming. She didn't make any noises to suggest she was ready to go. I was sad because the thing is, on a political level, Jacinda Ardern, I think, has been an excellent, um, you know, prime minister. I think the things that you've spoken about, the way that she led, I mean, in particular, her response to the 
the terrorist attack in New Zealand, it was done with such compassion and, you know, such humility. And I think it was a really good example of, you know, how to lead like a human in, in a crisis. And she kind of took that into COVID. I mean, she's the, the darling of like the international kind of left, if you will, she's seen as a humanitarian. So that's think- a good point on the the international left, because she did win a landslide second term in 2020. But since then, her popularity at home has actually diminished. And I yeah. think there's an interesting thing here in the international perception versus how she actually is as a domestic prime minister, if you like. I am a representative of that kind of international left, which is that I see her as an international politician rather than on a domestic level and what i hear from people in new zealand is that she's actually become quite unpopular they feel like she has kind of really let them down and i think one of the things that people say about jacinda ardern is that they went too far with the lockdowns around coronavirus they don't agree with the approach that she took about locking down for so long and it's i think if we just think about the way that resignations work it is interesting that, you know, it's come so out of the blue that it doesn't make me think that this is just pure coincidence. Mm. It feels to me, and I don't know if you feel the same, Kirsty, but it's got all the hallmarks of a snap decision has been taken. And often in politics, for someone as stable as Jacinda Ardern, who had a majority, she, you know, she'd recently won her election. Why has she just decided to pull out kind of halfway through? It doesn't follow on from her previous experience of being that stable solid politician she said oh i want to go off and get married and you know she's had a child but i I don't know what you think kirsty but i'm not quite sold on that being the end of the story i don't know maybe i'm hopelessly naive i kind of took her at her word right (laughs) so i mean a couple of things struck me about the, the speech that she made and one was this need to address the kind of the media, the conspiracy theory, is she jumping before she's pushed kind of crowd? Actually, she went out of her way to say, the only story here, the only story here is that I'm done. Mm. It's interesting to note that we've completely lost an ability to take people at face value. Mm. I mean, a woman with that level of self-awareness, I would assume, has spent a long time thinking about this. I don't think it's... A coincidence, if you like, that this has come relatively quickly after Christmas and New Year, where she's had some time to breathe, some time to think and go, okay. The other observation I'd make is my view of politicians, particularly those that meet the top, the psychology that it requires to get to the top of British politics, you've got to take leaders out of the office with their fingernails dragging on the (laughs) desk. So it is extraordinary to me that someone would volunteer to walk away i'm kind of the only two relative examples i can think of is one is sort of tony blair's deal with gordon brown which was kind of a breathing space kind of deal which you know sort of spectacularly backfired and estelle morris but by and large i listened to it and i thought what an incredible level of self-awareness and uh, I hate to sort of indulge in hashtag everyday sexism, but can you imagine a man doing this? Well, yeah, yeah. And, but there's, and there's an interesting thought there, isn't there? And stand by for this hot take from a man. Women who want to be at the top of politics and potentially other fields too, but obviously let's focus on politics, can't have it all. And despite the idea that they can be a, a prime minister and a political party leader and a mum and a wife and a whatever else, you can't have it all. Is that actually a systemic issue here that when you think about Kirsty? It is a very, very good point. I always said, 
what I really need is a home county's wife. Um, <laughs> and uh, sadly, I am not gay, so this was never going to happen for me. So, um, uh, But that is the reality. The reality is the only way I survived in number 10 and was able to do my job is because my sainted mother gave up her own life, poor woman, for three years yeah. to come and live in my house and help me raise my kids while I stayed up in London three nights a week because otherwise the job would have been impossible, not least because of Southern Rail. Thank you, Southern. Um, <laughs> you know, and, it's, and, it, and it is that, you know, we ha- women have to make choices sometimes that men simply don't have to make. You know, we have to decide whether... We want to have children when we want to have them. Does that mean working less hours? Even in a post-COVID world, that sense of presenteeism is creeping back into the office again. And, you know, you hear more and more people saying, well, I'm required to be back in, you know, Mm. X amount of days and what have you. Childcare is phenomenally expensive. And these are balancing acts that women have to pull off. And I'm here to tell you, the guilt of being in work with your kids at home is really real. You know, I gave up a job I loved, a job I absolutely loved. When I worked at, I was the deputy director at DCLG, let's get my acronym right, under the great Eric Pickles. Uh, I had great spans, Zoe Thurgood and Sheridan Westlake, and we had an absolute, a fantastic team, fantastic press office team. And it was one of the best jobs I ever had. And I had to give it up in the end because I couldn't make the childcare work. I was spending eye-watering amounts of money on a, uh, I hope she never listens to this, pretty low-grade nanny who I'd come home, it'd be like 9 o'clock at night, my kids are out, you know, playing in the square, you know, in their school uniform still, and she'd be asleep on the sofa and I'm paying £15 an hour for this. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I need to own my own childcare. Mm. So I got a job in local government and the rest is a spiral of, of misery and decline of moving out of London. But I never move out of London, by the way. Uh, uh, <laughs> from someone that's stuck living in the home counties, don't, don't, don't do it. Yes, you do have to make choices that men yeah. don't have to. And, and, you know, men can help and they get paternity leave and that's all good. But the reality is when push comes to shove, you know, Caring for children and actually caring for elderly parents when you get to a certain age as well, mm. the responsibility falls on women all of the time. Mm. Yeah, but I think Jacinda Ardern kind of challenged that almost in a way that I think a lot of people politically analysed her, I think, like, politicos, journalists alike. It's like, you know, how is she doing it? She's just had a baby. She's still pretty young. And we see the same kind of thing about Sarah Marin. Um, in Scandinavia, who all those videos of her. Is this the Finnish, the Finnish Prime Minister? Yeah, Finnish Prime Minister. The, was, the party, the original party <laughs> Prime Minister. Party Prime Minister, and people, you know, just they couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that she was young and going out, you know, having a drink with her friends and also running a country. But I think Jacinda Ardern was kind of a bit of a blueprint in showing that you can do it. But it was kind of almost the commentary as floor that it didn't accept that she was doing it because she was literally doing it and still analyzed her in the sense of how can she be doing it because it just seemed to be completely impossible but I think your comment Kirsty really resonate uh, resonated with me which is about the dignity in the resignation which is that accepting that you've done what you wanted to do, you feel like you've made an impact. I mean, I'm sure there's other reasons why she wants to go, but I think there's so much like pride in accepting that it's time to go and doing it in a graceful way. And it just makes me feel like I I would like to counter, you know, has 
has a graceful exit in any way, shape or form, you know, left us in Westminster? Because I, I can count on maybe one hand examples of good, graceful exits where I've left you, feeling respectful of someone. Yeah, you contrast that with a slightly churlish Boris Johnson when the herd turns, it turns, right? Oh, goodness me, them's the breaks. I mean, I just wanted to... It made me want to scoot my eyes out with a rusty spoon. How embarrassing. <laughs> That's an interesting thought, though. Right, what what about resignations, What and particularly spontaneous ones? Have either of you got experiences of... Of that, of those, of when you've kind of been a bit caught off guard, and perhaps it's not you know spontaneous as in they just announce it, but it sort of comes from nowhere, or or in the party that you're working in, something happens. You're like, oh my goodness, now this person's resigning. Go on, Frankie. I do, and it makes me think back to Change UK, and I can't actually oh, remember gosh, the iteration of name they have, but I remember the being... Nando's Squad. <laughs> Is this them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, basically, I remember I was, you know, I was working in um, the leader's office and there'd been rumours for a while that, you know, we'll, we'll talk about factions later, but it was a particular kind of faction within the Labour Party. You know, they were kind of softy, centrist, righty politicians who I think they considered themselves to be like socially liberal, economically fiscal. Um, but it was all tied around being unhappy about Brexit as things often are and so we started to hear rumbles that people were going to cross the floor but i think you know the concept of crossing the floor up until that point was kind of exclusively to a different already existing party so kind of we thought that what would happen is that people might leave the labor party and might leave the conservative party and go and join the liberal democrats and that would kind of be the start of the liberal democrat resurgence that was entirely kind of hooked around brexit and demanding a second referendum and then I remember on the morning when they did their press conference, our kind of um, head of communications, which was Seamus Milne and um, Jeremy's spokesperson, which was James Schneider, I'd bumped into James Schneider in the morning um, to go pick up my breakfast wrap, which, by the way, if you've not had a breakfast wrap from Parliament, if you want to put on 10 stone and never see the feet again, I guarantee it's something that you want to indulge in. But yeah, I was off to pick up my breakfast wrap and I bumped into him and he said make sure that we've got BBC News on, um, something's going to happen this morning. And I was like, oh, very exciting. So I went back to the office, um, put the TV on, and there they all were, sat there, <laughs> looking like boys' own, you know, like on the, on the stool, <laughs> like with a microphone. I half expected them to be like, you are my fan. <laughs> but no, um, they were announcing a new political party. And it was a shock in the sense of, you know, I think even from that point, right at the start, I don't know if you felt the same, Kirsty, but it was, you know... Electoral suicide. I think if we if we want to talk about spontaneous resignations, we really need Oscar back because <laughs> uh, you know I can't think of a single period in time where there were more spontaneous resignations. Uh, although the, the motivation was obvious, uh, then under Boris Johnson, I'm reading Seb Payne's brilliant book at the moment, The Fall of Boris Johnson, and I've just got to those those pages where you know he's trying to plough on and the Boris Johnson's trying to plough on and do the liaison committee and <laughs> and while he's trying to talk about you know wheat in the Bosphorus or something you know there's a there's a delegation of cabinet ministers that have gone to number 10 to to tell him how to resi to to resign and you know there's there's lots of comments in there from aides at the time saying look you know it was completely grim it was surreal we're just you know, we were ploughing on, we were, like, preparing for PMQs and stuff, and it's just, you know, the set is falling, you know, down around our ears, as it were. <laughs> and I know a thing or two about forced resignations. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, the, the story that, that kind of springs to mind at the time uh, for me was the resignation that wasn't. So 
I was the kind of I was in charge when I was at number ten of of, of Sunday journalism, weekend journalism. Uh, my title used to be before I insisted on getting it changed because it sounded so weird. <laughs> was uh, Head of the Weekend. I love that. Uh, which I just... Uh, it was just like the weirdest <laughs> job title ever. Uh, so I spontaneously changed it to Head of Political Press. Anyway, but basically I was in charge of the Sunday newspapers, which mm-hmm. was a little bit like being in charge of taming lions and herding cats all at the same time. Uh, but it did mean that Friday night was my kind of busiest crux night. And and people will now know that obviously Friday night was also the night that all the rest of the staff who'd worked very hard in the press office at Downing Street, I to gather at the little round table right outside the Spad's office where I was still trying to work and have a wee drink or two. Wine time Fridays. Wine time Fridays, as they were as they were uh, known. Uh, anyway, so wine time Fridays sort of <laughs> spilled out and disappeared into the pub. There's an expectation, a growing expectation, that the then Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, would resign over Windrush and she was taking counsel from her aides. This was going to happen on my watch, as it were, and there was me and a another senior person who shall remain nameless... Understood. Um, ..who stayed with me because, obviously, this would be a huge story. He was already three sheets to the wind... <laughs> And proceeded to sort of drink more and more gin, got drunker and drunker. And I kept on saying, look, you know, we need to sort of craft a, a statement now so that if Amber does go this evening, you know. And he just got drunker and drunker. And I got more and more panicky that, that this was all going to fall. It's a big deal, the Home Secretary resigning over a huge issue like Windrush. You know, you need to get these sorts of things signed off and there's a process and, you know. And I needed him to oil the wheels rather than oil oil himself. himself you know? yeah. And uh, it was absolutely spectacularly drunk. And I just remember sitting there thinking, "Oh my God, please don't resign now." You know, I don't, I don't really know how to get this cleared quickly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then mercifully, uh, she decided to to think on it for the weekend um, and save my bacon. But I just <laughs> trying to prop up this person that sat with me, going. Oh, no. Give him some coffee, you know. Um, That was the very stressful resignation that wasn't. Both of your stories are around rumours and speculation. Is this going to happen? When's it going to happen? How is the manoeuvring going on? And in some ways, actually, it probably brings us on to the next thing we want to talk about, which is the factions within a party, within a political party. We'll discuss that right after a very important message from some very important people about a very important place you can stay. Remember, you can email anytime, hello at whitehallsources.com. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with Resident Hotels. And unlike politicians' approval ratings, if it's consistency you yearn for, Resident Hotels are rated at the top of TripAdvisor. Out of 1,200 hotels in London, the Resident Covent Garden is number one. Resident insiders who are trained to give you secret tips and tricks of the neighbourhood in which you stay are, to be honest, a better support than most cabinet secretaries provide to the Prime Minister at any given moment. In London, you can also stay in Kensington, Soho and Victoria. Eddie C reviewed the resident, Covent Garden, on the 6th of October. He said, Awesome hotel in superb location. Great staff and beautiful, clean and comfy rooms. Highly recommend. Your exceptional experience awaits at Resident Hotels. Let's continue talking about political party factions, which has definitely been a theme of Whitehall sources since we launched, what, way back in October now, uh, particularly around the Conservative Party. 
because of the real difficulties that you get within under one umbrella of a political party actually you're representing so many different ideologies and directions and these things can diverge as time goes by and people can get disillusioned and want to change things and i ask i'm going to ask about about factions and particularly about sort of corralling factions working with factions within a party uh, because i clock this from political uh, this week um they say if there's one thing tories are good at it's forming pressure groups factions that have been active during this parliament include and i'm about to list them and forgive me because i have a slightly blocked nose so wish me luck as i plow my way through all of these right there is a group without a name that supports liz truss and her ideology name suggestions welcome email us anytime so there's the trust group then there is the Conservative Democratic Organization, the European Research Group, the COVID Recovery Group, the Northern Research Group, the China Research Group, IPAC-affiliated China Hawks, the Common Sense Conservatives, the Blue Collar Conservatives, the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, the Conservative Environment Network, the Property Research Group, the newly launched Next Gen Tories, Conservative Way Forward, the One Nation Caucus, and the 92 Group. Political Observe, that is 15 that is more than the number of years the Tories have been in power. And so that just sets the foundation for this next conversation, which is how on earth are you supposed to work with this number of groups? And actually, to just challenge that premise, first of all, Kirsty, as a government, do you have to? Do you have to work with this number of groups? For Python lovers, it's already people's front of Judea and Judea <laughs> people's front, isn't it? Um, uh... <laughs> Yes, what's a lot? I've never heard of the property research group before. That's yeah, a, they sound like party people, don't they? That's a new one on me. I'm, I'm going to like research them and find out what they're all about because uh, comms is clearly not their, um, their strong suit, is it? I mean, I think I've heard of all the rest of them over my time and some of them have given me nightmares in my years. Um, look, I think look, when, when Rishi Sunak... Uh, became Prime Minister, his aides delivered one message to the party, which was unite or die. Uh, we've said it before, and no doubt we'll say it again, that alongside the political crisis, the economic crisis this country faces, he faces a governance crisis within his own party because it is so split and so factionalised now that it is borderline ungovernable. And they said at the time, you know, unite or die... It seems to be that they have chosen a noble death uh, as their as their preferred option at the moment. So you know we're beginning to see a resurgence of I can't think of a wittier name right now than the Trussites yes. and a sort of an alignment with Boris Johnson, the cult of Boris Johnson Moonies. And actually, you know that fundamental split that ran right through the leadership contest last year about how do you best manage a post-COVID economy do you squeeze out inflation first because that as Thatcher would say is the destroyer of all of jobs of livelihood of society and it makes everybody poorer for longer than necessary which is the sort of Rishi Sunak arm of the party or do you go you know tax cuts tax cuts and that breeds growth mm. um, and actually you know it's also worth reminding people that that what really did for Rishi and Boris Johnson's relationship wasn't a personality clash. It was an issue over, you know, the very, very different views about how to manage the economy. And that was a sort of fundamental split. So the Conservatives have always been a broad, you know, broad church, as they say. 
one of the problems you get as you're in government for a very long time is you pile up an awful lot of people with grievances, you pile up an awful lot of people whose careers are behind them, and you pile up an awful lot of people who have just decided for one reason or other that they need to look out for themselves rather than support the, the government. Mm. And that's where we're at. There are 119 former ministers on the back benches. Uh, and, you know, more factions than you could shake a stick at. And so with that in mind, does Rishi Sunak need to work to, I suppose, appease these factions? Or can he, to an extent, just let them be? Just do your thing, you know, research your property, do whatever you want to do property research, no, but I don't care. No, you absolutely have to manage your party yeah. as best you can. I mean, I think one of the issues, one of the many issues that Boris Johnson's administration suffered from was a slight high-handedness because of the size of their majority. They thought that they could treat the party in a kind of high-handed way and that, you know, the backbenchers would would just, you know, allow themselves to be whipped like, you know, uh, ragged curs into the, in, into, the, into the right division lobbies for votes uh, without questioning it, whereas, of course, the 2019 intake are different generation with different needs and different views, right, yeah. and, and weren't... Uh, weren't prepared to be allowed to be used as like lobby fodder uh, in the way that the, the, the government expected them to. So, yes, you have to. Uh, I don't care what the size of your majority is. It is always better to bring people in to explain to them what is going on, to give them some context, to allow them to to vent and to listen to them and stop just broadcasting and treating them like that they will do your bidding. Uh, and you ignore them, again, regardless of the size of your majority, you ignore your parliamentary party and its factions at your peril. So interesting. Um, Frankie, the Labour Party, no stranger to factions either. I suppose, actually, just to start on the Labour Party, do you feel like it is less factional now, perhaps because the Labour Party can coalesce around what now feels like a realistic ambition of being the party of government? No, I don't think it's less factional. I think that you could argue that a lot of the political operators within Keir Starmer's office are operating at a highly factional level, which is that, you know, faction umwete, which basically means it's their their way or no way. Right. And I think that if you look at the selection process of, you know, parliamentary candidates in seats that the Labour Party is currently running at the moment i mean it's an uber factional operation and you know it's not me saying that as kind of a bitter person from the left you know michael crick has done quite a big um thread about this on on twitter uh looking at the way that the labor party has controlled and restricted um the availability of candidates to be able to stand in certain elections you know to put it in in one way we had a candidate who was standing in milton Keynes who was blocked from selection. Um, she's kind of known on the left, but is not really, you know, a super left-wing person. She wasn't involved in kind of any previous administration. So it's not like you can say she was part of, you know, any particular political project that would have, you know, challenged Keir Starmer before he was leader. And she was blocked for standing. And one of the examples they use in the sort of portfolio of issues that she'd done was that she had shown support to another party. And what that was is that she'd said that, uh, she wished Nicola Sturgeon a get well soon because she tested positive for COVID, like word for word, that is the screenshot of the tweet. So, I mean, that's highly factional behaviour. So in terms of what kind of factions are operating within the Labour Party at the moment, there's a strong argument that you've essentially got some very high and key figures in, you know, Blair's administration, or at least around Blair at the time that he was prime minister, that have kind of come back 
for Blairism 2.0. And Keir Starmer has really swapped factions, to be honest. I mean, he used to be part of the kind of very liberal um, left-wing um, Labour Party MPs who were, you know, definitely friendly towards Jeremy Corbyn's um, politics. I mean, Keir Starmer, before he was, you know, in Parliament, was a, a barrister at Doughty Street. Obviously, this is before he was director of PPP. Um, and basically, he seems to have really moved factions, which means that the people that would have been in his faction, maybe they've moved factions as well because they see this as a potential for them to become government ministers. But you've still got, you know, the Socialist Campaign Group, which is those old stalwarts. You have those Benite politics, which is people like John McDonnell. You've got kind of quieter figures like Rachel Maskell. Uh, Richard Bergen and you know they kind of loosely coalesce together and then you've also got the newer voices of the socialist campaign group and um, but who also kind of hold minor positions in his shadow cabinet who have kind of moved away particularly from the socialist campaign group because they perhaps feel like their association with that faction is not something they kind of want to be seen all the time with mm. in order to try and maximize their factions you know success within within government so it's interesting uh, there's lots of different types at the moment to watch for in the labor party as they get ready for government as they say i mean the interesting thing about the labor party is that actually what's happened over the last two years of keir starmer's leadership is that he's spent a good amount of time and energy and political capital uh, expunging one kind of overweening element of the party, which had, through entryism, if you like, under Corbyn's leadership, had completely kind of taken over the party. And, you know, Frankie will disagree with this, but in the eyes of the sort of centrist elements of the Labour Party, had disconnected Labour Party from its people and its values. So actually what we've seen in the Labour Party in the last two years is a deliberate purge of one you know, overweening element, the extremists, the anti-Semites that joined, and they had the NEC prescribed four organisations that were supportive, uh, were either openly anti-Semitic or were sort of supportive of anti-Semitic aims. And that led to the, uh, the expulsion of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Labour members for, you know, liking tweets... Uh, you know, saying something once, you know, it was a really, really significant purge of the party to to drag it back to the centre ground. Um, now, you know, you can argue that uh, the centre ground is where all kind of broad church mainstream parties should live. And there is a faction within the Labour Party that will always survive in that socialist. I smiled when Frank described Richard Bergen as, as, as quiet. Uh, <laughs> You know, God love Richard, he's a, he's a chatty fellow. I don't, I don't ever think of him. He's a very, very loud and vociferous campaigner. Um, uh, you know, so there always was that faction, but what happened was that it, it kind of consumed the Labour Party and, and broke it away from its centrist moorings. I mean, what I would say is, is the Labour Party... I'm going to for cover now, <laughs> Frankie yeah. comes back. No, I mean, look, the Labour Party's never had centrist moorings. Let's, let's be realistic. You know, the Labour Party, when it was set up was set up in a tradition of, you know, soft left. That's the point, it's soft left. And centrists aren't soft left, they're centrists, and there is a key political difference there. And I think, look, I'm not going to kind of move this into a conversation about anti-Semitism because, you know, anti-Semitism exists within the Labour Party. It is the right thing to do to get rid of it. So I wouldn't knock any attempts to clear out 
anti-Semites because that is what any decent, you know, political party would do in the same way that the Conservative Party needs to shake a leg and getting rid of their Islamophobes. But I suppose that is a question for another time. The point about clearing out a faction is that a faction of people within the Labour Party in terms of those left-wing politics, regardless of whether it's rebranded as momentum, is not really entryism, because if you look at the amount of people that joined, lots of them used to be Labour Party members. They left under Tony Blair. So this concept of entryism suggests it's like a new group of people who've never been aligned with the Labour Party. No doubt there were new members who were never aligned by the Labour Party, but a huge amount of those supporters that kind of coalesced around 2015 were former Labour Party voters who felt like it was actually the centrist tradition and that faction that took away their Labour Party for them. It's the age-old issue of the Labour Party. But there has never been a factional purge of this scale seen in the Labour Party. And if you speak to Labour Party politicians who even might consider themselves to be soft left or centrist, they will be worried about the implications of clearing out huge sections of the Labour Party and stifling the opportunity to have the politics of even deputy leader like Angela Rayner. The argument that people say now is that if Angela Rayner was standing for selection to be a parliamentary candidate for the Labour Party, would she be blocked under Keir Starmer's Labour? And I would suggest that she probably would be. Right. And that is a question that anyone, regardless of factions within the Labour Party, should ask if that is something that would be beneficial to us. Because I think, you know, Angela Rayner is one of our biggest assets. And I think in government, she will be a massive asset. And is it, you know, has it gone too far? I want to ask, with all of this in mind, are factions always harmful? Or in fact, can they be quite useful? Because you've got a, a group, however big, a cluster of MPs that can represent an element of your party that presumably is reflected in the public at large. So are they always harmful, Kirsty? Can they actually be conducive? When I, well, it depends, it depends what your aim is. I think if you are a member of the public fighting an injustice, trying to get uh, your voice heard in Parliament, the one thing I would always advocate for is cross-party campaigning. Mm. When I think of all the most powerful and impactful campaigns that have come through Parliament, whether that's uh, you know uh, around steelworkers' pensions, whether that's around contaminated blood, whether that's around justice for Hillsborough, Grenfell, all of these, all of these have cross-party support. Uh, and I think that, you know, regardless of who is in government or what time they're in government or how powerful a government they have, what moves the dial in Parliament and therefore changes legislation is cross-party support. So if I was going to say from that point of view, I would always favour a kind of cross-party approach. If you're talking internally, then yes, caucuses matter. You mm. know, caucuses are a big group who carry a lot of votes and therefore a lot of power. So from their point of view, yes, they work. From from government's point of view, from number 10's point of view, they are to be managed and sometimes they're a headache. Uh, but at this stage of the game, like I say, they've they've become so many, so split and are so... Uh, deaf to each other and the need to compromise and unite that I don't know what you can do to appease all sides of the Conservative Party at the moment. It's ferrets in a sack time. Uh, really interesting on 
reflections. Thank you both. Uh, really, really interesting. Right, we've got a few minutes left of this week's episode, and we can't let a week go by without discussing strike action, can we? Uh, let's discuss teachers, because this <laughs> this is actually new territory for us uh, on the podcast, uh, because teachers um, are planning to go out on strike. They voted to go out on strike, certainly for members of the National Education Union. Uh, so members in England and Wales have voted to, uh, for action on seven dates in February and March. Uh, it's notable that this union uh, has voted for strikes. Another union did not reach the actual threshold uh, in order for the uh, the ballot to be considered. And taking all of that in the round, Frankie, uh, just interpret teacher strikes for us, what this does by way of the strike picture at large, um, and just how bothersome this is going to be, frankly, for parents who now need to keep their kids off school. Yeah, I mean, the teacher strike really changes the dial, I think, when it comes to the impact of industrial action. I mean, they always say that when the teachers go on strike, the economy grinds to a halt because, you know, people can't really go to work if their kids aren't in school because the teachers are striking. I think that the National uh, National Education Union, um, for them to actually reach the threshold for them to be able to get this ballot over the line was a... Just, wasn't it? Very, very slightly. A mammoth effort. And I think one of the things to point out as well is when we talk about the, you know, anti-strike laws that were brought in under the Conservative government, not this one, but a previous one, you get 50% um, of people voting in your entire union membership to be able to get a strike over the line, which statistically speaking is probably a lot less than elected you um, not Rishi Sunak, because obviously he wasn't elected, but Liz Truss, they say that um, if you compare that to strike ballots, um, she got less than the threshold needed to get in as prime minister than strikes uh, need to have to be able to get over the line when ballots go out. And I think for this many teachers to be taking industrial action, to have, you know, felt like they've had enough to the point where they're going to strike, knowing the impact it will have on children, knowing the impact it will have on parents is not to be underestimated. And I think it really will change the dial when it comes to the strikes. Obviously, there are rumblings about a potential coordinated day of action between unions. And just to say as well, I mean, people talk about a general strike um, as if, you know, it can just unions can just give each other a text you know have a group chat on whatsapp and say like should we should we all fancy going out on the same day um you have to go to the the tuc and call a vote on taking um a general strike like it's quite a um i suppose a bureaucratic process in the way uh, a wildcat strike is somewhere where they don't follow kind of the the channels of how you would do that so is this pointing to a general strike I don't know if all of the unions within the TUC would agree to have a general strike um, because they come from different political leanings and some of them might feel that their members are doing all right, so might not vote for it. Will this lead to big, coordinated days of action? Most likely. Mm. And I think we'll have to assess the impact if the teacher's going out because they're not just going out for one day. They're going out for consecutive days. And I'm a union rep at work and already I'm having to think about what our policy is going to be the parents with, you know, school-age kids, are they going to be made to come into work? What impact is that going to have? So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where where that goes. But I think, you know, good on them, well done the teachers. Kirsty, do you agree then that the teachers' strikes take the, the overall picture of strike action? They certainly give it new depth for this government to have to handle. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, uh, we, we're getting a sort of, you know, a sense that actually rather than bringing these strikes to a 
to a kind of close anytime soon. They're actually the positions are hardening and that the action is is spreading out. And the first of February feels like a general strike in all but name. Forgive me if I can make a kind of personal point about the impact of strikes, not just on the government but on the people that are kind of caught in the middle of of all of this, which is the rest of us, uh, as it were. And this is just one example. But you know, I have a uh, my youngest son is autistic. And like many parents of autistic children, our experience of the education system has been difficult, tragic, complicated. My son was excluded from primary school at the age of eight. He was put into a wholly inappropriate education setting by the council against my wishes. It was a setting where my son saw and was subjected to things that no eight-year-old boy should ever have to witness or be subjected to, to the point where, you know, he would come home and say, Mum, I just want to drink bleach and not be here anymore. I obviously fought against the council to move my son out of there. I spent my life savings on hiring a very scary lawyer known in the special educational needs trade as the bulldog to get him out of there uh, and into the right educational setting, uh, which eventually happened. We were weeks away from a tribunal and... The school that he was in, uh, to the surprise of no one, was given an adequate rating by Ofsted uh, and the council folded and moved him. Now, that was about four years ago. And I have to say, you know, I have no... There is no doubt in my mind, no doubt in my mind, that the school he has been moved to, which is a school for children with high-functioning autism, has saved him, saved him from self-harm, saved him from worse. It has transformed his confidence. It has transformed his access and understanding and confidence and interest in learning and it has transformed our home life you know which was incredibly stressful before he went there and insofar as I have heroes they are the staff and the teachers at this school that my son goes to now I bow to no one in my admiration and respect for teachers and my understanding from my own experience of how transformative the right teaching environment and the right teachers can be, not just for for the children, but for the families of those children too. Uh, But I have another son, and that son is in secondary school. That son has ADHD and has had a quite problematic uh, relationship with accessing education. He was late diagnosed. He went through covid Uh, And he's missed a lot of school, right? And he has a lot of catching up to do. Uh, He is a few weeks away from his GCSEs. And we had a parents' evening at the back end of last year. And the teachers at the school said, the one thing, we're like 100 days away from your kids sitting, the most important exams of their life, they've set the course of their life, etc. no pressure. This is the one most important thing you as parents can do is make sure that your child is in school. Every day matters. Every day of education between now and then matters. All we're going to do now is focus on the exams, how to revise, how to prep, going over the coursework. Now, because my son's got ADHD, once his medication wears off in the evening, the idea that he'll sit and study himself or I can get it and I can't get a tutor for love and money It's just, it's not happening. So the only education my son will get and the only chance he's got of catching up is in school. So I understand that teachers are conflicted, but I also am conflicted about this too because 
the impact that this has on children, particularly certain children at certain stages who are sitting their GCSEs, it isn't just about parents, and that is problematic enough. So when I hear people in the union say, look, we appreciate this is disruptive, that's kind of the point, I kind of want to say back again, well, yeah, I get it, but disruptive for who? It's not disruptive for government ministers. It's disruptive for children facing stressful GCSEs. It's disruptive for low-income parents who have got to try and balance childcare and do their job. You know, rail workers strike. If you strike on the rail, you're not inconveniencing government minister that drives to work in a ministerial car. You're inconveniencing key workers that need to get to work. If you strike as a nurse and I can't get my elective surgery, you're not inconveniencing government, you're inconveniencing frightened people who are in pain. So I get it, I, I, I appreciate it, and I'm not saying that nobody has the right to strike. I just say that I understand the confliction of it, I understand why the turnout was low. Having the right to strike is not the same as whether it is right to strike. And I think my own personal view, and I've said it before, once this is all over and a negotiated settlement has happened, and it seems hard to see how we get there right now, but it will happen eventually, I personally think a pay commission should be set up to look at how we as a society value and pay those that are, perform really vital jobs in our society, like care workers and health workers, who my own personal opinion is they're simply not paid enough. Thank you both for a personal and political take on the on the teachers' strike action. I think that's actually so representative of so many of you that are listening as well. When it comes to the different sectors of the economy and of society that are going on strike, because each one will probably get into your life in a different way. Um, and I wonder if the teachers' strike will make it particularly personal for lots and lots of people. Uh, that just about does it then for Whitehall Sources this week. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Thanks for being here. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope you've signed up to the mailing list as you've been listening to this episode. If you have, we'll give you a special mention on next week's podcast. Just go to whitehallsources.com, pop in your details, and believe me, you will not be spammed. The first email you get from us will be a big announcement at some point in the future yet to be determined but it will come your way so go to whitehallsources.com to sign up email us anytime with your thoughts on what you've heard with your questions as well if you want if you want frankie and kirsty to address something in particular a burning issue then go for it email hello at whitehallsources.com we'll be back in your podcast feed next thursday with a brand new episode so until then goodbye goodbye